Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today I'm talking about Season 6, Episode 11, Gone, where the trio makes Buffy into something that rhymes with Blinvisible. Along with the recap of Gone, I'll talk about how Buffy's disinterest in life affects the story, illustrating the storytelling challenges of an unengaged protagonist, why lots of conflict doesn't always equal a strong plot, season hooks that don't really hook like the geek trio stealing the diamond from the museum, and small moments that subtly show building conflict between Buffy and Xander and that show their closeness and friendship. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Gone aired the first time on January 8, 2002. It was written and directed by David Fury. It starts with three opening conflicts before the credits. The first one occurs at Buffy's house. She gathers tarot cards and other magic supplies as Willow sits on the bed and Dawn looks on and Dawn says, candles? We can't have candles? Buffy explains it's a magic clearance to help Willow get past her addiction. Dawn gets really upset when Buffy puts Coco Pelli, a statue Joyce loved, in the box. And Dawn says, why do we have to get rid of so many things that I like. Buffy explains Willow has a big problem and any reminder over the next few weeks could cause her to fall into temptation. Buffy though stops talking because as she's hunting for magic supplies in the couch cushions, she runs across Spike's lighter and she flashes back to kissing him and Buffy says, and that would be bad. So that first opening conflict is between Buffy and Dawn. It's a conflict for Willow as well. Although she is on board, she even points out some supplies Buffy missed because they were hidden. The second conflict relates to Buffy and Spike. Buffy trying to overcome her own feelings about Spike and all of this catches the audience up very quickly on where we are in the season and the ongoing personal issues for Willow and Buffy. Neither of these relates directly to the main plot, but they are both season arcs. Now we get to the third conflict. The scene cuts to the geek trio. This probably goes to the main plot. I'll get to why I say probably later. Warren demonstrates a ray gun that makes a chair invisible or anything invisible. And Jonathan is super excited. He sits on the invisible chair and rocks on it. Warren aims the gun at Jonathan. He turns the chair visible again, but Jonathan was pretty scared that something would happen to him. Warren tells him, cheer up, 
the invisibility ray makes them pretty much unstoppable. And we go to credits. So I mentioned hooks that don't hook. This is a hook that works well. And most of the hooks within the episode itself to bring us from scene to scene are good ones that capture attention. That was at three minutes, 15 seconds. We come back from credits right about 10% through the episode, a little bit before that at four minutes, two seconds. Usually around 10%, we see a story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. Here, what that is, is not very clear. Buffy calls Dawn to hurry up so she can have breakfast before Xander gets there to take her to school. Buffy then asks Willow, who's making an omelet, how she's doing. Willow's okay, though she's not ready to head back to class. She says she'll spend the day looking for information on the internet about the stolen diamond. That refers to the robbery that happened back in Smashed, so two episodes ago where the Geek Trio did the museum heist. And usually in Buffy, we have not just season-long arcs, but some smaller arcs that provide a mini storyline that helps pull the audience from episode to episode, which was a big change from TV at the time Buffy started, which was mainly one-off episodes. Typically, Buffy uses these mini arcs really well to keep us engaged, but this is the hook that doesn't hook I referred to because personally, I don't care about the museum heist or the diamond. Every time I rewatch, I have to remind myself what it was that the characters were even researching. It just doesn't have the power of, say, the ongoing research about the key in season five, or for that matter, trying to figure out how to stop Adam in season four, which didn't have a tremendous amount of power for me because I wasn't that engaged with the Adam story, but this, I'd love to hear your thoughts because for me, I, I care zero about it. Dawn barely speaks to Buffy when she comes into the kitchen. She says she's not hungry when Willow offers her an omelet. And when Buffy tells her she needs to eat, Dawn says, thanks for your concern and stalks out. Willow says to Buffy, okay, I deserve the wrath of Dawn, but why is she taking it out on you? Buffy tells Willow it's because Buffy let it happen. Her best friend was in trouble and Buffy was too wrapped up in her own life to notice. Right then, Spike enters, which is what Buffy somewhat was wrapped up in, or certainly it's what she feels guilty about being wrapped up in. His whole body smoking because he was out in the sun, shielded only by his blanket. He claims he was just out taking a stroll, but also he's looking for his lighter, which he thought might have fallen out of his pocket while he was there. Buffy claims that she didn't find it. After Willow goes upstairs, Buffy and Spike spar. She accuses him of making up excuses to see her and tells him to stop trying to see her. She also tells him not to call her love. This is another running conflict for quite a few episodes. This one engages me much more. The struggle that Buffy has with her own feelings about Spike and Spike's persistence, though clearly they share a strong attraction. 
Spike asks what he should call her. How about Pet or my little Goldilocks? And he strokes her long hair, saying he loves it. She resists him at first, but is clearly tempted when he does something off screen. However, when Xander walks in and yells at Spike to tell him to leave Buffy alone, Buffy pretends that she was trying to push Spike away. Xander says only a complete loser would hook up with Spike unless she's a simpleton like Harmony or crazy like Drusilla. This upsets Buffy. She tries not to show it and tells Xander he needs to get Dawn to school. Then she tells Spike to let himself out. At the front door, Buffy tells Dawn to come right home after school, and as the door opens, Dawn says, maybe we can find some time to get me into another car accident. Of course, that is the exact moment when the social worker appears at the front door, likely overhearing that comment. And that happens at 7 minutes 20 seconds. So I mentioned it's hard to pinpoint the story spark for the main plot here. If the main plot is Buffy dealing with Geek Trio, which is going to turn her invisible, then that story was sparked probably when they invented the invisibility ray. My challenge with that is there's no statement in the episode that they invented it to make Buffy invisible or to directly impact Buffy at all. There's a suggestion that Warren had that in mind, but even that is not clear. So it's a little challenging to call that a main plot or to see the invisibility ray as sparking the story. But it does in the sense that without the Ray, Buffy wouldn't have ended up facing the geek trio in this episode. The invisibility ray being ready happened about 3 minutes 15 seconds, so before the 10% mark, which is perfectly fine. Some stories have their inciting incident on page 1 or in scene 1, and that generally sets off a really good pace for the episode. The 10% mark is just where most often I see that spark. If it's later, that can be a lot more problematic because your episode is starting slowly. So if it is Buffy versus the social worker as the main plot, this is a bit late. It's about 7 minutes 20 seconds into a roughly 42-minute episode. My struggles with this episode and why I've never particularly liked it include that it is hard to sort out the main plot here, but both of the potential main plots don't really grab me. Buffy doesn't care about one of those plots, the invisibility one, and because the other is treated almost entirely as a joke, neither one hits me emotionally. Buffy says she thought the social worker, Doris, was coming on Wednesday. Doris responds, this is Wednesday. Unfortunately for Buffy, that is true. Doris comes in. Spike is sitting in an armchair scowling. Buffy claims he's not her boyfriend when Doris makes that mistake. And she tells Spike, this is the nice woman from social services. And he says, oh, right. And then tries to help by saying Buffy's a great mom. And for example, when Dawn was hanging around his crypt, Buffy put a stop to it. Doris is quite puzzled and Buffy says crib 
crib and calls uh, calls it buggin' street slang that Spike is using. He demands his blanket before leaving, and after he stalks off, Doris assumes that he must sleep there. Buffy tells her, no, no, it's like a security blanket and no one else lives in the house. Unclear why Buffy says that, but understandably, she's pretty flustered and maybe she thinks, uh, perhaps rightly, that it will look bad if it's her and other college students living there. Unfortunately for Buffy, once again, things go wrong because Willow calls down that she's not feeling well and she's going to take a nap. And Buffy says, that's Willow. She, uh, she kind of lives here too, actually. Doris says, oh, so you live with another woman. And Buffy says, oh, oh, it's not a, a gay thing. You know, I mean, well, she's gay, but, but we don't gay. Not that there's anything, oh, wrong, wrong with... Doris picks up, as Buffy's talking, a bag of magic herbs, and Buffy segues and says, you know, I know what that looks like, but I swear it's not what it looks like. It's magic weed. It's not mine. I did enjoy this short monologue by Buffy, her stumbling over, will the social worker think it's a bad thing if she thinks Buffy's gay, but Buffy's not gay, but she doesn't want to make it sound like she thinks that's bad. Hopefully these days that wouldn't be as much of an issue, but I suspect there are lots of places where it still is. Doris expresses her concern that Buffy can't provide a stable environment. She points to Dawn's absences from school, her lateness, her falling grades. The episode is nearing one quarter through. It's about 10 minutes, 33 seconds. So we're a little short of that. Around here, I start looking for that first major plot turn. I think of it as the one quarter twist. It should come from outside the protagonist and spin the story in a new direction. And sometimes it raises the stakes. And it could be as late as a third through. So here, a little early, there is a pretty major development. Doris tells Buffy she's going to recommend immediate probation, which means she'll be monitoring Buffy and watching her, and if things don't improve, she'll strip Buffy of guardianship. After Doris leaves, Spike appears behind Buffy and asks if it didn't go well. He seems genuinely sympathetic, and he stayed in case she would want to talk. But Buffy is so upset and frustrated. She tells him to leave. She's really angry, and he practically pins her against the wall. His hand reaches down. We think it's something sexual, but he's reaching in her jeans pocket to take the lighter. He is angry at how Buffy's treating him. He calls her Goldilocks and leaves. At 11 minutes, 41 seconds, Buffy's up in her room. She's partly crying, she's angry, and she grabs some scissors and cuts her hair. This episode reminds me of a lot of the ones in season four where I was trying to figure out the plot and a lot of it early in the episode was emotional, how Buffy was feeling, how she was dealing with college life, or maybe how Willow was handling things with Oz or with Tara, and the monster plot would start much later. We cut to a commercial and come back and Buffy is at the hair salon. The stylist thinks she can work with what Buffy did and asks what Buffy wants and Buffy says, just make me different. I love this line as I love many lines in the episode, but this one because it so expresses how Buffy feels. 
Outside the salon, the trio is talking about testing the gun. They don't know Buffy is there, and they see her walk out of the salon. Her hair looks very cute. It's uh, somewhat above shoulder length, and Warren is watching her and doesn't notice that Andrew and Jonathan grab the gun and are fighting over it. At 13 minutes, 12 seconds, in their fight, they accidentally set off the gun and make Buffy and a number of things around her invisible. This is that monster plot, and we can see it as the first major plot turn. It's from outside of Buffy, definitely spins the story, definitely raises the stakes. Although, to a large extent, it almost feels more like a story spark to me for the reasons I mentioned before. And one challenge with this plot, the the main challenge, is that though Buffy has just turned invisible, that doesn't prompt her to do anything to address the invisibility or to try to find out who did it to her. Your ideal protagonist is actively pursuing a goal throughout the episode is the main point of view character and has the most at stake. So Buffy has some of this. She does have the most at stake, though we don't find that out until very late in the episode. But she isn't actively pursuing much. She kind of is pursuing trying to get Dawn off to school, trying to take care of Dawn, but She's reacting most of the episode, reacting to the social worker, reacting to Spike. And when she turns invisible, she'll embrace her invisibility, but she isn't active as to the main plot itself. There are good reasons for that because of where Buffy is in her life and how she's feeling, but it robs the storyline of intensity, of tension, of engagement. It's hard as an audience to be engaged when the protagonist is not. Just after Buffy turns invisible, the scene cuts to Xander and Anya, and Xander says, what happened to Buffy? She's gone. Anya responds, she's right here, table four. I put her with your family. She is pointing to a seating chart for the wedding, and Xander says, great, except we don't hate Buffy. This leads to a conversation about who else is invited, and Xander is not thrilled Anya intends to invite Dehofren, the demon who made her a vengeance demon. This is another season arc. It includes some conflict, and it is always great for comic relief. Buffy enters the store and says that Ani has a point about inviting her ex-boss, but of course no one can see Buffy and Xander asks where she is. Buffy responds, at table four apparently. And now we see one of those moments showing Buffy's and Xander's bond because she tells them not to try to see her. She's an invisible girl. And Xander asks if she's been feeling ignored lately. That refers to that season one episode where Marcy, a girl who no one paid attention to, turned invisible because of it. And Buffy immediately gets the reference and says, yeah, ignored. I wish. No, this isn't a Marcy deal. I don't know what happened. I left Main Street after getting my hair cut and 
man was. And Anya says, you cut your hair? And Buffy responds, oh, yeah. Anya asks how short it is. And Buffy says, mm, about up to here. Well, if you could see my hand, it's kind of above my shoulders. Anya says, ah, oh, that sounds adorable. I was thinking about getting my hair cut before the wedding. Sandra says, can we get back to freaking out about no-show Buffy? This is serious. Buffy, though, is anything but serious. She picks up two balls and tosses them and carries them around as she talks about her morning, including the social worker, and she adds there might be an upside to no-see-me since Doris was going to be watching Buffy. Anya asks why anyone would want an invisible slayer. Surely that would be a lot more dangerous. And Buffy answers while playing with a skull, moving its jaw. They keep trying to get her to be serious. Xander finally says he'll check the spot where she disappeared. Buffy decides to go take a walk to, quote, clear my head, end quote. And she laughs about that. The bell on the door rings as she leaves. That bell was a nice callback to Life Serial, where Buffy uh, kept trying to solve the loop in the magic box. Buffy goofing around here, on the one hand, is kind of fun because we haven't gotten to see Buffy be light and fun for the season. It also shows the challenge of being funny or humorous when it's woven into an episode where there is supposed to be danger or maybe a show where there's supposed to be danger. So not only does Buffy's disengagement undermine the power of the story, she doesn't care, so it's hard for us to care, both main plots are treated as uh, mainly as a joke. Buffy is treating this as a joke, and Anne will see also the Dora situation treated as a joke. It takes a lot of skill to make humor work amidst a serious story and I I think here the goal probably was not to create a serious story at all in any of the storylines so maybe this is a matter of personal taste and I prefer at least one story to be gripping and serious I would love to hear your thoughts on that so please feel free to comment on YouTube or Patreon or send me or Twitter or send me an email buffystorypod at gmail.com Anya thinks it must be some kind of spell possibly a magical mistake and that's when it hits Xander that it could be Willow at 16 minutes 16 seconds Willow is at the dining table she is researching using books in her laptop She starts to use magic to get a book from the other end of the table, but she stops just before Xander walks in. In this sense, that running museum heist arc works as a device to give Willow something to be researching before she finds out about the invisibility. I would like it better if she was researching something that we care about. And part of why I don't care about the museum height is we as the audience know who did it. And as we'll see at the end of the episode, it makes no difference to anything. Also, it is rare in Buffy that any plot line is there just to be a device to allow the characters to do something else. And that is part of why it is such a great show because It is unusual for any aspect or any story element to be more or less 
I guess I won't say wasted, but insignificant. Almost everything matters in Buffy. Xander says, Willow, we need to talk. And then we get a great line because Willow says, we are talking. Well, I'm talking and you're looking at me funny. Xander asks if she has something to tell him. Willow confesses she almost slipped. She's thinking about the book. And Xander tells her the important thing is to fix Buffy. Now Willow's really confused. Xander starts to explain what happened to Buffy and he ends with rhymes with Blinvisible and he adds that it happened after Buffy left the hair salon. Now we get the second time of the haircutting joke. Willow says Buffy got her hair cut and Xander says yeah adorable apparently. I personally couldn't tell since she's all Blinvisible. Willow's upset when it hits her that Xander thinks she did a spell that went wrong. She storms off after saying, what's the point of being off the wagon if everyone thinks she's making pit stops? I should have said this at the beginning. Thank you so much for returning to Buffy and the Art of Story. After a slightly longer break than I had expected to take, I did a lot of traveling. There are a few photos on Instagram, at Lisa M. Lilly, and on the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. I saw a ton of cathedrals in Europe all of which supported Buffy's comment, note to self, religion creepy. Uh, Lots of coffins and skulls. Uh, One had a, a, for some reason, high up in the cathedral, a goat's head. Uh, Not a real goat's head, an artist's depiction of one. And plenty of saints, relics, and bones. One of the places I went was Prague. I found it so beautiful. I've never been there before. And some of those cobblestone streets and plazas, I was almost sure I had seen in the Buffy and Angel flashbacks. And I may have thought that because there was that reference early in Buffy to a mob in Prague attacking Drusilla. And that seemed to be part of why she had all these issues but I did some research and it doesn't seem that anything was filmed in Prague all the same if you ever go there let me know I'm pretty sure you will think that it looks a lot like some of those flashback scenes my goal was to not work during the whole trip which was a month long and for the most part I did not I got lots of ideas for a second supernatural thriller series I want to do to follow up to my awakening series I'm thinking it'll be called the Tara Spencer Chronicles won't be working on that for some time but I was very intrigued again in Prague by some things I learned about alchemists there also did a lot of plotting in my head for my next QC Davis mystery and when I got back I started outlining it and wrote some very early pages very rough I did do some actual work while on the trip that relates to the podcast because the day before the trip I broke my fourth toe on one of my feet and while it wasn't terribly painful it did mean I had to spend a fair amount of time with my foot elevated anytime I did any amount of walking. So while I was sitting and elevating, I did do some editing on the Buffy and the Art of Story Season 3 Part 1 
book. It has taken me a long time, I know, but I am super close to the end. And depending how much copy editing there is with it, I'm hoping to release it in the next month or two. So if you or anyone you know prefers to read the books or just likes reading the books to revisit the story analysis and the episodes, you can look for this sometime soon. I will let you know. Last thing, I also thought through the next bonus episode for Patreon supporters. The working title is Working Hard for the Money, Story Issues with Buffy's Part-Time Jobs and Almost Jobs. You can look for that soon on patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A, M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. And if you're not already a patron and getting access to those bonus episodes you can join for as little as a dollar a month there's lots of extra content there at 18 minutes 10 seconds the trio works on the invisibility ray gun and they talk about their plans to use it to see naked women while they are invisible but jonathan is worried about buffy being invisible he says that makes the slayer more dangerous she could be spying on them right now Warren, though, claims the Slayer is not a problem. The scene cuts to the park where invisible Buffy claims to be the ghost of fashion victims past. She steals a hat off a woman's head and throws it away, and the woman, spooked, runs off. Buffy sees a meter reader giving a ticket, and she takes off in his cart, saying, So long, Kappa. At 19 minutes 37 seconds, Buffy does become active in one of the main plots. She goes to the social services office where she moves Doris's mug around, confusing Doris, and then Buffy quietly, making it seem like the mug is talking, makes the mug sway and says, kill, kill, kill. Doris yells at the mug to shut up, disconcerting her co-workers, and Buffy goes on to tell her as the mug to kill everybody. Doris runs off, Buffy finds her file, presumably deletes it on the computer, and types up a new report, which she prints out. Doris, on her way back from the restroom, runs into her supervisor who wants to talk about the Summers case. But when he opens her file, he finds a report with tons of pages that say all work and no play make Doris a dull girl over and over. A fun reference to the movie The Shining. Doris argues it wasn't her, it was the voice, the one that made her coffee mug dance. The supervisor is now very worried and tells her to go home and go to the doctor. When she asks about her cases, he says someone else will take over and will redo the summer's evaluation. It is hard to remember how I felt about this scene when I saw it the first time because now watching it, it doesn't feel funny at all because there have been so many mass shootings. There are so many concerns about mental health, especially post-pandemic, which of course mental health was a concern long before this, but at the time that Buffy was being made, people were not as aware and there were not so many 
mass killings or mass shooting events, I don't think now that the scene would be written this way because it, it is hard to find it funny. The scene also suggests that the social worker plot is not a main plot because it's over. We're at the middle of the episode and it is all over. And Buffy will not address any of the very real concerns that Doris raised. She won't talk to Dawn about her absences from school or her lateness or anything. And in fact, she'll be very insensitive to Dawn in a bit. And that is part of why the the um, storyline also isn't engaging to me. I know it's there to be funny, but it starts out quite serious. I do find it believable that Buffy does not take Doris's concerns seriously and that she approaches it this way because where Buffy is at in the season, how she is feeling inside, the fact that she is depressed and unhappy and having trouble being engaged with life, all of that supports and fits her actions here. But it does leave me as an audience member less interested. So we are left with the invisibility plot, which does go through the whole episode. So I do think it is the main plot. And that raises another challenge because we get to the midpoint of the episode and there's not any movement in that plot in terms of Buffy versus the trio. We could see the last scene as a sort of midpoint commitment by Buffy. At the midpoint, I look for a protagonist to make a major commitment to the quest or to suffer a major reversal. If the main plot had been Buffy uh, dealing with Doris, Buffy did take a pretty big chance here. Like, sure, she knew this would freak Doris out, but she didn't know if she might be somehow revealing herself. Even though no one can see her, there there could have been some bad consequences from this potentially, and that plot immediately ends. So we don't have a real commitment for Buffy here. We have a victory over Doris, a climax in that subplot. Now Buffy will, in her personal life, make a sort of commitment and suffer a reversal. And it relates to the invisibility and that she can only do it because she's invisible, but it doesn't relate to her dealing with the invisibility or dealing with whoever did this to her. And it will come later than halfway through the episode. Now, why does that matter so much? A strong midpoint really drives the second half of a story. It keeps the pace going in a story and it keeps the audience engaged. Here, a little over midway through, we switch, though, to Willow. At 22 minutes, 42 seconds, Willow is spraying spray paint on various things that are invisible in the area where Buffy disappeared. Xander joins her, and Willow defensively says she found this spot without magic, and she shows him a treadmark indicating a vehicle sped away quickly. She also shows Xander a black paint scraping she got from an invisible fire hydrant. And the black showed, which indicates that the vehicle hit it after it turned invisible. Xander remembers that there was a black van following Buffy 
at different times when demons or people were messing with her. Willow is going to track down the van, stalking Buffy, and then she says, by the way, where is Buffy? And then we cut to Spike watching TV alone in his crypt. From the TV, we hear someone saying, look at all the blood. And then Spike's stomach rumbles and he gets up to get blood from his fridge. I never noticed that before and I do enjoy that humor there. Now Buffy throws caution to the wind in her personal life. So a bit of a midpoint commitment in that sense. At 24 minutes, 11 seconds, Spike's door swings open. He doesn't see anyone and he warns whatever type of beastie it is that he knows it's there and he hurts beasties. Then he thinks it's a ghost and tells it to go haunt the living. Instead, it pushes him against the wall, and when his shirt is ripped open, Spike says, Buffy, and Buffy says, I told you, stop trying to see me. We see that as caution to the wind in that Buffy approaches Spike. She goes there to have sex with him. She is owning her own desire for him, though as we'll get to, it's only because she thinks no one can possibly find out. At 25 minutes, 34 seconds at the magic box, Anya touches the spray painted traffic cone that Willow discovered. And Anya finds out that the cone has turned mushy like pudding. She and Xander realize that if it's happening to the cone, it must be happening to Buffy. And we cut to a commercial. So another great cut finding out that there is serious danger to Buffy, not just of not turning visible again, but of dying because of this. This raises the stakes, and I wish we had known something like this earlier in the episode. If somehow the audience had known that, even if Buffy didn't, it would have added to the power of the episode and probably Buffy joking around would have been more fun for me. I could have enjoyed the fun of the joke, but I would have had the dramatic tension of knowing, hey, Buffy's joking around and this is really dangerous. The scene cuts to the trio who also now realize what's happening and Jonathan says what do you mean she's gonna fade away and Warren says the big burst of radiation that hit Buffy to make her invisible will ultimately kill her Jonathan argues that they aren't supposed to be killing anyone especially not Buffy he says they are crime lords not killers Andrew agrees more or less and points out that Lex Luthor is always trying to take over Metropolis, but he never kills Superman. Warren points out that's because it's Superman's comic book. Jonathan demands that Warren get that Ray working properly and reverse what they did to Buffy. Warren stands up, stares down at Jonathan, who's quite short. Jonathan looks nervous, but he doesn't back down, and Warren finally agrees, or at least he seems to. Xander enters Spike's crypt and finds Spike making love to invisible Buffy. Xander doesn't know what he's seeing and Spike claims he's exercising nude and mimes doing push-ups causing Buffy to squeak. And Spike says another great line, a man shouldn't use immortality as an excuse to let himself go. 
He wraps a sheet around himself, sits on the edge of the bed, and says he hasn't seen Buffy. Xander says he wouldn't. She's come down with a slight case of invisibility. Spike tries to hold this conversation while Buffy nibbles on his ear. He waves her away. Xander finds Spike weirder and weirder because he doesn't know Buffy's there. And on the way out, Xander tells Spike he really ought to find a girlfriend. He's getting really strange. After he leaves, Buffy says this is perfect. Xander had no idea she was there, and Spike says perfect for her. She doesn't get why he's upset. Spike says, this vanishing act's right liberating for you in it. Go anywhere you want, do anything you want, or anyone. And Buffy says, what are you talking about? And Spike cuts her off and says, the only reason you're here is that you're not here. And Buffy responds, right, of course, as usual, there's something wrong with Buffy. She came back all wrong. You know, I didn't ask for this to happen to me. And Spike says, not too put off by it, though, are you? Buffy says, no, maybe because for the first time since I'm free, free of rules and reports, free of this life. Spike gets dressed as they talk, and he says, free of life? Got another name for that, dead. Once again, showing Spike's insight into Buffy's psyche because that is a large part of what Buffy's been struggling with. She was happy when she was dead and now she's in this world that is so difficult for her and being invisible does free her of that because no one can see her no one can find her if she doesn't want them to trouble can't find her if she doesn't want it to and the only other way to have that freedom would be to be dead again if she could go back to the place that she was which is not guaranteed now I don't think Buffy is thinking all this But Spike is correct to point out that's at the heart of it. Now Buffy says, why do you always have to, I thought we were having fun. And Spike says, yeah, now, but sooner or later, your chums are going to work out a way to bring you back to living color. You need to go. Get dressed if you can find your clothes and push off. Because if I can't have all of you, I'd rather. And then he looks down and says, hey, that's cheating. This tells us a lot about how Spike feels that it it really hurts his feelings that Buffy doesn't want anyone to know about them. And also, he knows this is short-lived until Buffy is visible again. At 30 minutes, 40 seconds, Willow drums her fingers while waiting for the DMV computer to finish processing her query. She starts to reach her hand toward the screen, ready to use magic to her it along but she pulls back at the last moment and the results finally appears she sighs and writes down some information we're now about three quarters through the story that's where that last major plot turn usually happens and it should grow out of the midpoint take the story in another new direction sometimes further raise the stakes we do get that in a way in a little bit but first invisible buffy kicks a can in the street ranting to herself about spike throwing her out she can't believe it is she in a bizarro world she bumps into some pedestrians and tells them to watch out at 31 minutes 47 seconds she gets home and calls out for willow and then dawn there's no answer and she says when calling for dawn does she want to see something neat 
A few minutes later, Dawn enters the house. Her arm is still in a sling. I should have mentioned that earlier from when it was broken during the events of Wrecked. She sees the refrigerator door open and she hears Buffy talking and asks where Buffy is. Buffy jokes around about being invisible. She floats a pizza. Dawn gets really upset and tells Buffy to stop. Buffy reassures her that Xander and Anya are working on it, and Dawn asks why Buffy's not. And a little bit shrieky, she says she can't talk to Buffy if she can't see her. I have a listener comment from Roberta Lip of the They Coined It Mad Men podcast about Smashed and Wrecked. And she starts with responding to my comment that we never knew before uh, that there was somebody like Rack who you could go to to get spells, who is sort of like a pusher. And I felt that was artificially inserted and didn't feel authentic to me. And Roberta makes some great points. She says, I was kind of okay with this whole new dark world, even what may be inconsistencies that you point out. It reminded me of Riley and the feeding prostitution world that we never knew about. It makes sense that there are whole other worlds that Buffy and Sunnydale are not really aware of. And Roberta, I agree. I think that is a really good point that I did not think about. And then Roberta puts her finger on something else. I had talked about the whole sudden magic as addiction bothered me. Maybe not so much that Willow is shown as addicted to magic, but this sudden escalation where suddenly she's going to rack for more spells and a greater high and that we hadn't seen uh, that before. Roberta says what's missing and has been missing for a long time is Willow's internal life about this. She's been trying to stop. That's new. I think if we had seen that developed, this episode would have made more sense. And that goes to something I missed, but I feel like that actually is what troubles me, that it's so quickly escalated and that we we don't see Willow trying to stop. It's just suddenly she she hits bottom. Things are so bad. Now, Roberta and I, on my trip, part of it was in the U.S., and I got to meet Roberta in person for the first time, which was super fun. Uh, we talked about Type 10 or Mrs. Maisel podcast that we've been working on recording. And mostly we talked about Buffy and I told her I agreed with her and she mentioned that there actually was some reference to Willow trying to stop in the earlier episodes that she had missed. I don't remember where that was and I feel like if she didn't recall it at first and I still can't remember it, that it needed to be emphasized a little more, that we did need more of a build of Willow seeing she has a problem and trying to address it before we get to this point where she's begging Buffy for help and saying that she tried and she couldn't stop. 
Roberta's comment continued to your point, we don't see her, Willow, decide to go back a second night, meaning to Rex. The way I look at something like that, she probably decided to take John to the movies with the thought that it would be possible to do a quick stop, denying to herself that she absolutely was going to go back. If they had given us a glimmer of that, that would have helped, either of her hesitation, the thought, or the outright schemes. In some ways, this sudden dark addiction seemed just that sudden. Again, very little internal process. We've all seen her addiction for a long time, but there has only been arrogance about it. No self-doubt, no cost except for physical, and that was when she used it for very important purposes. This was a whole new flavor, and for her to hit bottom, and especially for her to say she needs help, did seem sudden, although that was correctly reflected in Buffy's reluctance to be compassionate about it in the moment. So that really says it much better, I think, than I did and pinpoints what I see as the major issue with that storyline. Roberta also points out some important things about magic as a drug because I had questioned that shift in metaphor. And Roberta says, when Tara and Willow first started doing magic together, they did sort of get high. It was the stand-in for their becoming lovers, but it also did happen, the ecstasy of the magic and the sexual relationship was intertwined. And that is a great point as well that I overlook when doing the episode. I think I mentioned either in that episode or in my patron bonus episode on this issue that we did get an earlier reference to certain things being a high when Giles said he and his friends conjured the demon Igon and let it inhabit them and that it was an extraordinary high. Thank you, Roberta, for those comments. This scene with Buffy and Dawn is a return of the shrieky, annoying Dawn. And it's another instance in the season where I I really want to have sympathy for Dawn. I should have sympathy for Dawn. I've got to think this is part of the way it's directed, and, and this is throughout, so it's it's not a slam on David Fury or anyone who directed Dawn. It seems to be a decision of how to portray her is to have her have this real sort of shrieky edge to it which makes it hard to not see her as the annoying little sister. And I dislike pinpointing that because women are so often criticized for the quality of their voices and for simply having higher pitched voices than most men do. At the same time, Dawn just feels so over the top here and I feel like we would all have more sympathy for her and understand where she was coming from. Maybe not even if her delivery weren't shrieky, but if we got more of a sense of how she feels inside, this idea of, well, I can't talk to you if I can't see you. I only believe Dawn's upset because she's shrieking about that. But if it, her dialogue maybe had focused more on, you're not taking this seriously. She does say that. But if her focus had been more on that, how can you joke around about this I can't talk to you if you keep joking about this I can't talk to you if you think this is fun those things shriek or no shriek would have resonated more with me 
At 33 minutes, 23 seconds, we do get a bit of a major plot turn. Buffy hits the answering machine button. This is back in the day of answering machines. And here's Xander's message with Anya chiming in about the discovery that Buffy will dissolve into nothing if they can't make her visible again. And Buffy says, wow. The challenge with this as a plot turn is that the audience already knew this. It already happened. So it doesn't exactly spin the story. And Buffy will still be mainly reacting. Next, Willow goes into a dark house after checking the address on her slip of paper. So we figure she got that from the DMV computer. There's no one there. She's in the basement and sees the trio's whiteboard. And on the top, the words invisibility ray are written. Willow looks over their models and plans, but suddenly an invisible guy grabs her and tapes her mouth shut. And Warren says, congratulations, you're our first hostage. And we cut to commercial. On return at Buffy's home, the phone rings. So here is why I say it doesn't exactly spin the story because Buffy's discovering this doesn't cause what happens next. It's Willow who goes there to the house and Anne Warren and the other geeks who take her hostage. And that is independent of Buffy finding out this about her invisibility. And now Buffy reacts not so much to finding out, but to this phone call. It's Jonathan. He changes his voice when she asks who it is and says he sounds familiar. He tells her they have Willow. Buffy has not shifted gears. She hasn't gone into find the villains mode. It is dropped into her lap and she goes to this game arcade, goes through the turnstile style, and sees Willow near one of the arcade games. The guys are still invisible as well. Willow tells Buffy there are only three of them. Warren calls out for the others. He tries to pretend there are more, but even the two guys he has are MIA, as we see one of the arcade games seeming to play itself, and we hear Jonathan and Andrew arguing. Warren tells Buffy he'll turn her back. It was an accident. Willow informs Buffy that these are the guys who have been plaguing her and tells her about her molecules deteriorating, which Buffy says she knows. Buffy asks Warren what are they going to do now to annoy her. Warren again says they can fix her and to pick up an air hockey pusher so he has a target. I had to look up what these were called. So with air hockey, there's the puck and then there's these, I kept calling them holders. Online, they call them pushers or paddles. Buffy picks up one of them. So we know where she's at. The trio knows where she's at. And this is the start of the climax, the final confrontation between the opposing forces of Buffy and the trio. Willow, though, looks over at the gun and warns that it's on the wrong setting. Jonathan now asks Warren if that's true. Warren says to ignore Willow, and he knocks her over with the gun. Buffy throws the ice hockey pusher in his direction, and there's an invisible fight that we hear. It sounds like Buffy's getting the better of it. Other patrons run from the arcade. The guys argue amongst themselves. Willow gets to the gun, changes the settings, and one by one makes everyone visible, starting with Buffy. She is holding Jonathan, and she's shocked and throws him aside. Warren appears in a bunch of plastic balls. It's one of those ball cages that kids play in. Buffy recognizes Jonathan and Warren, but looks at Andrew and says, who are you? And Andrew says, Andrew, I summoned the flying monkeys that attack the high school. 
Buffy still looks puzzled, and Andrew says, during the school play, you know? And Warren says, Tucker's brother. Buffy says, what, they banded together to be pains in her ass? And Warren responds, another great line, we're your arch nemesis, sis, sees. He goes on that she might have beaten them this time, but next time, and he pauses dramatically, and one of them throws down a smoke bomb, and they all try to leave before the smoke clears, but can't get through the turnstile, and Buffy says, I give you my arch nemesis, sis, sees. We're now at the falling action where the episode ties up loose ends or resolves subplots. A security guard asks what's going on and the guys rush out. Buffy doesn't stop them. So I said you could, I think I said you could lift this whole uh, storyline out and it would make no difference, that it just doesn't affect much. It does result in Buffy knowing who the three guys are and who's been plaguing her. So in that sense, there is movement in the season arc. But it feels unimportant partly because Buffy doesn't think it matters. She doesn't chase after them. We as the audience knew all along who it was and despite her molecules deteriorating, Buffy doesn't act like it was any big deal. I thought about this in comparison to previous seasons because there in other seasons we knew who the major villain was before Buffy did or one of them. In season two we thought it was Spike, it turns out to be Angelus, or it switches to Angelus, but we knew about Spike, and we knew about Angelus a little before Buffy did, and both of those things created tension. So why does that not work here? Similarly, we knew who the master was, we saw Glory before Buffy did. I think the difference is, as an audience, we perceived all of those villains as being a significant danger to Buffy because their goals were clear and directly opposed Buffy. So the main job of any antagonist is to push against the protagonist, and that goes for season-long antagonists as well. And these guys, so far as we know, do not have a goal of pushing against Buffy. There are some hints that maybe Warren does because we get the feeling Warren knew Buffy was deteriorating and he is the one who put that setting wrong. So he was trying to kill Buffy. But the trio as a group does not want to kill Buffy. Jonathan actively doesn't want to and stands up for it. Andrew seems mostly neutral. He'll follow where Warren leads. But as a group, their goals are separate. They are uh, to take over Sunnydale so that they can have money and chicks, chicks, chicks. In an indirect way, Buffy's obviously not going to let them take over Sunnydale, but as a group, they don't seem to see that as an issue. Warren does, but the group does not. In contrast, the master not only wanted to the to walk the earth again, which he knew the Slayer would try to stop, he needed Buffy to follow the prophecy and come down to face him in order to get out. So they were in direct opposition. Spike in season two specifically aimed to kill another slayer and Jealous's the dearest goal of his heart was to torment Buffy. The mayor in season three wanted to ascend, saw Buffy as a major obstacle to that, manipulated Faith to try to keep Buffy from stopping him. In season four, there was a similar issue with Adam because Buffy was largely irrelevant 
to him and it made the season lack power. Yes, she eventually went up against him, but he never saw her to his detriment as a major threat. And that did leave the season somewhat unfocused. On the other hand, Glory needed the key and Dawn was the key and Buffy was protecting Dawn. So you have head to head conflict there. And we just don't see that with the trio other than now we get this hint that maybe that is in Warren's plans. Now in the falling action, Willow says, oh my god, Buffy. And Buffy says she knows, she guesses she should chase them. But Willow says, in the last of the times to talk about Buffy's hair, no, your hair, it is adorable. This is a sort of three beat. In a three beat, you have uh, the same concept or dialogue line coming back three times. And typically the third time subverts the first two. That's why I say sort of a three beat because this just kind of reiterates it now that Buffy's hair can be seen. Everyone's been guessing it's adorable. Now we know it is. Willow and Buffy leave the arcade and sit on the curb. Buffy asks how Willow found the trio and Willow says the hard way, no magic, quote, the oh my god, my head's gonna fall off, unquote, way. And she doesn't know how she got through the day. Buffy tells her the important thing is that she did. It's a good first step. When Willow asks, Buffy says she's okay. She has to do some damage control from her giddy fest and confides the, quote, whole taking a vacation from me didn't work out too well, end quote, a sentiment Willow empathizes with. And then Buffy adds, except when I got Sanders message, you know, that I was fading away, I actually got scared. And Willow says, well, yeah, who wouldn't? Buffy responds, me. I wouldn't. Not too long ago, I probably would have welcomed it, but I realized I'm not saying that I'm doing backflips about my life, but I didn't. I don't want to die. That's something, right? And Willow says, it's something. So I guess we both made good first steps. And Buffy responds, I guess. And Willow says, yay for us. And Buffy responds, yay. Both of them sounding very sad here, and, and we can tell it is a tiny first step for both of them. They are both still struggling. This moment does show some movement in the season arc for both characters. It is small movement. It is important, and yet it feels like this episode does very little. And I will talk about that more in spoilers. There is a lot of conflict in this episode. Buffy, Spike, Buffy, Dawn, Xander, Buffy. Uh, the trio, weirdly less so, versus Buffy. The social worker versus Buffy. But the way these plot points and turns aren't very strong or aren't there, the way the comedy, in my view, undermines the power of the stories, Buffy's lack of engagement, all of that shows that just because you have a lot of conflict doesn't necessarily make for a strong or compelling story. So that is it for the breakdown of the episode, other than foreshadowing, which I hope you will stick around for. 
If you find the way I talk about plot and story structure helpful and want to apply it to your own writing, you can get free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. If you're not sticking around for foreshadowing, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode 12, Double Meat Palace, where Buffy experiences the horror of working in the fast food industry. And we are back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. As I mentioned, Buffy does take a small step here. She doesn't want to die. I don't see it as being all that significant because in Double Meat Palace and a couple later episodes, we will see that Buffy is still so depressed. She doesn't feel anything it's almost like she moved forward in this episode and then immediately the series put her right back where she was at the beginning of it i'll have to see when i break down double meat and the next few episodes is that really true is there any movement on buffy but my recollection is this just resets at the beginning of the next episode and buffy is still super disconnected super depressed Willow, there is much more movement. And I found it very authentic, that struggle with she did stay away from magic, and yet when something goes wrong, understandably, everyone thinks maybe Willow's spell went wrong again. And she's struggling with how do I, in essence, stay sober when everyone assumes I'm drinking anyway. And she will continue to grow, to feel stronger. We'll see her in Double Meat Palace struggle with a quote-unquote gift of magic from Amy, how much harder it makes it for her, but how much resolve she has. And that keeps building until Tara's death derails her. But it is a very nicely written arc gradually willow getting better getting stronger coming to grips with a life where she doesn't do magic jonathan's comment about well we're crime lords not killers shows so much about his psyche warren is being more honest here or more realistic jonathan he's not trying to be dishonest but he is fooling himself and we will see this in dead things when the trio uses this cerebral dampener on katrina warren's ex-girlfriend to have sex with her and jonathan seems blind to the fact that this is rape until katrina confronts him and it leads to them killing Katrina when they realize how much trouble they could be in. This comment about crime lords not killers foreshadows that. There is no distinction there. He's trying to make a distinction and Andrew a little less strongly is trying to as well. And Warren changing that gun at the end to really kill Buffy foreshadows that this is where they are going whether Jonathan wants to see it or not. This confrontation between Warren and Jonathan foreshadows quite a few things with the trio. One, that Warren will try to cut Jonathan out. He will start bonding more with Andrew. He will start doing a two against one thing. And Jonathan will continue to be troubled and will help Buffy in the fight when Warren gets these, again, balls. We had plastic balls here. He has these magic balls 
balls from, uh, I think from the demon. I can't remember where they came from, but they make him invulnerable. And Jonathan tells Buffy that that's what she has to smash in order to defeat Jonathan. So un- to defeat Warren. So unknown to Warren, Jonathan helps Buffy. So a lot of that is set up here. And I, and I like that. This makes me think I should talk a little more or look a little more into the relationships between these three guys because there are some very interesting dynamics going on there. Tons of foreshadowing with Buffy and Spike. Spike's anger, not just over how Buffy talks to him or speaks to him, but the fact that Buffy wants him, but she wants him when it is convenient for her. And it has always been that way. I shouldn't say always. It's not like they've been involved that long but it, it it's been that way since they first had sex and now we're seeing that it is wearing on spike that perhaps he will not want to be with buffy no matter what although when she breaks up with him essentially for this reason he doesn't want her to do it he wants to be with her even if it's only using him this also foreshadows him pushing her to tell her friends about him. This episode also foreshadows this Xander and Buffy split when Xander finds out about Spike and the awful things that he says to Buffy, how possessive he is of Buffy, and how entitled he feels to critique her choices just because she didn't want him. But... This episode makes me be a tiny bit more fair to Xander because part of why, um, I shouldn't say more fair, uh, to understand him a little more because I had forgotten part of why he is so angry is in retrospect, I think he's embarrassed that he was constantly ragging on Spike, telling Spike he had no chance with Buffy, saying no one but an idiot could could want Spike and all along or at least from for you know some of it Buffy was actually sleeping with Spike so it makes Xander feel foolish and he reacts very badly to that it it probably makes him feel like Buffy was putting one over on him or Spike was putting one over on him not to excuse the way Xander treats Buffy Xander doesn't know he's hurting Buffy's feelings here and embarrassing her but he is is. And this also goes to, I raised a question, well, why does Buffy have such a hard time dealing with the fact that she's attracted to Spike and to the idea that she could want Spike even if she doesn't love him the way she loved Angel or she doesn't love him at all. But seeing Xander say these things, it's easy to see why Buffy doesn't want to tell her friends. Xander at least will be very judgy and will look down on her will think poorly of her will tell her about it and this lets her know that that her fears are real of how her friends will see her at least Xander now personally I think that should make her question her friendship with Xander but instead because of where Buffy is at and her own internal feelings about this it makes her just feel worse about herself not worse about Xander. The social worker story foreshadows the Buffy birthday episode where Don makes the wish to the vengeance demon because the vengeance demon poses as a school counselor or social worker and she addresses 
what's at the heart of some of Dawn's problems, how disconnected and lonely Dawn feels. And in that sense, though Doris is looking at outward manifestations of that, Dawn being late, Dawn being absent, concerns over the household, nonetheless, all these things are having a bad effect on Dawn. So the vengeance demon comes in, and that's when Buffy finally at the end of that episode takes some of it to heart and realizes she needs to really be there for Dawn in a way that she has not been. This foreshadows that but it's also why I say you could lift this episode out because Buffy doesn't do anything different really in response to Doris's concerns. Not that I can remember. We'll see as as the episodes develop perhaps Buffy does take a little of this to heart by collection is she doesn't and that's why we end up with the events of her birthday that is it for foreshadowing thank you again for listening and a special thank you to the patrons who support the show please come back in two weeks for season six episode 12 double meat palace where buffy gets a part-time job and encounters what she thinks is an evil conspiracy If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Instagram at Lisa M. Lily. That's L I S A M as in Marie, L I L Y. Or email me at buffystorypod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.